Welcome to the Speaking of Women's Health CME podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Holly Thacker. I'm the executive director of our nonprofit, Speaking of Women's Health, which is dedicated to empowering women to be strong and be healthy and be in charge. This episode of Speaking of Women's Health podcast is sponsored by a grant by Estellas and Bear in conjunction with Rush University, Plexus Communications, the nonprofit Advancing Health After Hysterectomy, and the nonprofit Speaking of Women's Health. You can find more information about this free CME program for physicians, APPs, pharmacists, at the and this podcast as well as upcoming podcasts on how to get your CME credit for free on menopauselearning.com. Joining us today in this episode on February 1st is Dr. Nanette Santoro. Dr. Santoro has been an active clinician and highly successful researcher in reproductive endocrinology since 1986. I think she started in childhood. She's directed the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology in two medical schools, New Jersey Medical School and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, both of which provide full-service care for women with reproductive problems of all kinds. Dr. Santoro's major research interests include reproductive endocrinology of premature, peri, and postmenopausal infertility, and the physiology of gonadotropin-releasing uh, secretions. She has been involved with numerous industry and government-supported clinical trials, including the very important study of women across the nation, the so-called SWAN study, the Kronos Early Estrogen Prevention Trial, also known as KEEPS, and the reproductive physiology of ovarian failure. She's also co-editor of the textbook of perimenopausal gynecology and the upcoming textbook, Amenorrhea, A Clinician's Guide. Sounds like that's going to be some reading assignments for my fellows. I I direct a two-year fellowship in specialty women's health at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Santoro has held K-24 grants, establishment of regular ovulation and normal menarche for the last nine years, and she was named a 5280 top doctor in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Santoro. I know how busy you are. You're a world traveler. You share your insights uh, with physicians around the world, and it's so appreciated in the field of midlife women's health. Today, our topic for the podcast is the Skylight Estella study. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Santoro. Um, Please introduce yourself. Tell us uh, where people might be able to contact you or any websites or any any, uh, sources that you want us to focus on. And we'll just start off by asking you to tell us about the Skylight Estella study. Okay, well, thanks so much, Dr. Thacker. It's a pleasure to be able to discuss this. as chair of the Department of OB-GYN at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, I am usually pretty easy to find. So I don't really have uh, much of a presence on Twitter and social media where uh, we publicize our results through organizations like NAMS and uh, the SWAN study website. And I am actually the chair of their translation and dissemination committee. So my job is to get this information out to people, which I hope will, will happen. And this is one of the ways to do it. So uh, just as by way of introduction, there's excitement about the Skylight 2 study because it represents what's going to be one of the, the first of what is likely to be several compounds that have a new approach to treating hot flashes. 
So we've had estrogen and then we've had everything else. And estrogen works great, but not everyone can take it. Not everyone wants to take it. And everything else works not so great. The way that we've learned about just about every other treatment for hot flashes is that women managed to incidentally be taking them and reported back to their doctor that they felt better. That first, I don't know what you gave me, but since I've been taking that, my hot flashes got better. So that led in many times the doctor or the clinician who got that information to say, hey, let's take, let's take a closer look at this particular medication. I think that may be it. In that way, we backed into the SSRI, SNRI drugs, gabapentin, um, and several of the others that also have some efficacy. Nothing is as good as estrogen. So now fast forward to around uh, the early aughts when an astute uh, pathologist in Arizona discovered that when you took the ovaries out of rodents, this particular neuron called candy neurons in the brain uh, went up. And you saw many more candy neurons and you saw more candy neuron activity. She then looked further and isolated one of the receptors on these neurons. The candy neuron makes kispeptin, neurokinin, and dynorphin. And kispeptin drives the reproductive system. Dynorphin drives the pain and opioid system. And neurokinins drive uh, general processes of inflammation through the body. They interact with the vagal nerve. Um, and they were a bit mysterious, but she found a way to block that neurokinin receptor in animals. And when she did that, the animals lost their coolness-seeking behavior after their ovaries were out. So women that are menopausal will immediately appreciate what coolness-seeking is something that many of us will do when we're having hot flashes. Absolutely. So the, uh, the neurokinin antagonist is what did the job. So it's an NK3 receptor antagonist, which is quite a mouthful. But it's a highly specific treatment that usually can be accomplished by, by a variety of small molecules. So uh, Skylight 2 is one of the uh, phase 3 studies for fezolinitant, which is currently under FDA review, and we are hopeful that soon we will be getting a notice of approval for the compound. So this is one of several studies that went into the process of FDA approval, and it looked at what's likely to be one of the two marketed doses. Uh, well, two of what, these are the two doses that'll be out there. So in um, Skylight, about approximately equal groups of about 167 women took placebo. Another group took fezolinotant at 30 milligrams, and another group took fezolinotant at 45 milligrams. And the study was done as the standard hot flash study that the FDA usually requires, which is you've got to be a big, bad hot flasher to uh, get into the study. You need to have at least seven hot flashes a day, and they need to be called moderate to severe. So moderate hot flashes uh, are ones that really you take notice of, and severe hot flashes are so bad, they pretty much stop you in your tracks, and you have to stop doing what you're doing and need a little time to recover from them. So they're pretty bad hot flashes. Um, women that had that number of hot flashes, aged 40 to 65, so again, a pretty wide range, who were defined as postmenopausal, and uh, women had in this study had about a third of them, quarter to a third, had had a hysterectomy. So those are numbers that are pretty consistent with the general population. Um, in this particular trial, also, there was good representation of Latina women, about 20%, and about 20% African-American women. Oh, that's terrific, because so, yeah. women of color tend to have 
more intense vasomotor symptoms, don't they? Yeah, as a group they do. They tend to have longer duration of vasomotor symptoms as well. So it's encouraging that that, uh, all of these groups were included. Uh, About 20% of the women smoke. That's pretty average. And the average BMI of the group is around 28. So these are very consistent numbers with what you see in the population. So these are regular women. They took it for 12 weeks in a blinded fashion. And then at the 12-week point, they were crossed over all of them to active drug. So if you took placebo, you then got active fesalinitan for 52 weeks. At the end of that, another series of safety assessments were done. So what we have essentially is very good data on this limited number of women, about 500, for um, long-term safety for up to a year. So a, a variety of safety outcomes were looked at. And in addition to the standard measures of hot flashes, we measure how many hot flashes you have. Uh, women get use diaries to record those. So frequency and also severity. Although there's a little bit of a wrinkle in severity because the only ones that you continue to record are the ones that are moderate to severe. If, if your hot flashes go from severe to mild because you took a medication, they drop out so they don't even get measured. So when you look at the numbers, the severity improvement doesn't look as impressive as the frequency, and that's one of the reasons why. But at both doses, fesalinitant dropped hot flashes Uh, The daily mean from about 11 to 5 in the 30 milligram group and from about 12 to 4 in the 45 milligram group. And that, though both of those are highly statistically significant, this happens at week 4 and again at week 12. So we see these big improvements pretty quickly. And when you look at the graph day by day, really within days. So that's another really nice feature is that It looks like it's specific. It looks like it really nails the source of hot flashes, and it happens quickly. So the daily mean is very impressive. In this study, the placebo effect was also fairly huge, but uh, this was still significant compared to placebo. Placebo women had about 12 hot flashes, and they dropped down by 12 weeks to uh, seven. That's a fairly substantial placebo effect. Which we usually um, see in, in lots of studies, including hot flash studies. And certainly we see it clinically when patients say they took some supplement, which really would have no reason to reduce hot flashes, and they say that it's reduced. Yes, that's that's true. And uh, the placebo effect is in some ways the bane of your existence in hot flash studies. But in some ways, you know, if we could, if we could marshal that, it would be good. It would be a treatment. Because patients don't care if the placebo made them better. If we could get it to work longer, I'd be all in favor of that. Exactly. So severity severity went down somewhat less, uh, as you might guess. So the daily mean scores were like 2.4 to 1.8, 2.4 to 1.6. They don't sound as impressive. These are not these huge, you know, 75%, 80% reductions. Um, And in the placebo group, there was also a reduction in uh, severity from 2.4 to something like 2.1 or 2. Were there any like quality of life measures? Because obviously, you know, how how the reduction in the vasomotor symptoms affects that individual woman in terms of her sleep or her work productivity, all of that is critically important and of course is going to guide whether the woman continues to take any prescribed agent, I would imagine. Yes. And one of, one of the major things that hot flashes do is they disrupt sleep. So the promise sleep scale was used. And at the 45 milligram dose, but not the 30 milligram dose, there were significant improvements in sleep. 
that were uh, better than placebo. So do you so, an- highly- do you anticipate that that it will just be the forty five milligram dose that will be approved, or will it be both two options and physicians can decide to I, titrate? I really hope that uh, the FDA approves the forty five milligram dose because, and the FDA tends to be conservative and they want to market the lowest dose that will cure 50% of your patients. But that means 50% of your patients don't get adequate relief. And that's not good. Uh, So when you see that impact, it's probably related to the waking after sleep onset that hot flashes are notorious for doing. Um, But there may be independent effects that make it better for sleep. So that was encouraging. And that had been seen in some of the earlier studies that had used higher doses. Um, in terms of safety, fesalinitant looked very safe at these at these doses for this duration, um, because historically there was some concern. Uh, there's a prior compound that was in development, and it was abandoned because it had too much liver toxicity at therapeutic doses. Fesalinitant is a different shaped molecule, so it was hoped that it wouldn't have those effects, and it doesn't seem to. So when you look at the drug-related adverse events. Um, they are very similar between the placebo groups and all doses. And any drug-related adverse event that led to discontinuation was also similar between placebo and the different doses. Well, that's certainly reassuring. Is it known about any kind of drug-drug interactions, other drugs that are metabolized through the hepatic cytochrome uh, enzymes? Yeah, there don't seem to be known interactions. And some of the women in this study were taking SSRIs, um, they just still had to meet the hot flash criteria. So there doesn't seem to be an interaction with that. It doesn't seem to have affected the efficacy. Um, it, we are currently looking at the age ranges, BMI, uh, surgical status, and other patient characteristics that predict whether you responded to fesalinitant or not. And that data is probably, I think we're presenting that at ACOG. Oh, that's great. And that will be in May? Yes. Yeah. And where might physicians be able to anticipate um, reading the publication of the Skylight 2? So Skylight was just accepted on Monday to the JCEM. So it'll be in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, and it should be open access. Congratulations. That's really exciting. So how would you rank the symptoms um, that it it treats? And do you have any comments about vasomotor equivalence? Because you know, some people flash, some people flush, some people have other equivalents. Yeah. And based on what, you know, it looks like all comers in this, this is a broad age group. So it's pretty standard uh, treatment. And, you know, the interesting thing to me is that in my practice, I have a number of patients who just are miserable hot flashers and they really are not getting relief from anything else. So they're kind of on my list. They're sending me messages through the portal every couple of weeks, you know, can I get this yet? Because that's, that's, I think many of us clinicians have such patients and we're going to be giving them as lenitant first. May not be fair uh, to, to the drug to ask it to cure what nothing else seems to work for, but it sure will be exciting if that, if that happens. It sure will. And any idea about the time frame? I know it's hard to predict with the FDA. Um, yeah, there's there. It seems like it's proceeding without a lot of drama, but I don't know the details. ICER just put out a report on what they recommend and how they recommend its use in in uh, clinical practice. So. 
that's helpful. And of course, we need to see what the cost will be and if uh, health insurers will pick up those costs. Yeah, those so are... I am. Yeah. So my my goal, I hope to see the forty five milligram dose get approved, and I hope that it's going to be at a cost that's going to be affordable for our patients. And you know, everything changes a little after it's out in real life use. But this is going to be the first in class. And behind it are a number of other interesting compounds that are similar, that are specific for NK3. And then there's also some that act at slightly different locations and may also work on some of those same inflammatory pathways that we may see coming to market. So we're really kind of at a new uh, crossroads with hot flesh treatment. Yeah, that's really exciting because there's certainly some women who don't necessarily have super prominent vasomotor symptoms, but they have a lot of somatic complaints. They don't really fit criteria for depression or chronic pain syndromes, but they seem to have areas that reflect, you know, their, their functioning and their body perceptions just are not optimal. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah, and you wonder if that's some low-grade inflammatory issue that may resolve. So these are probably the kinds of patients that we may try it on in clinical practice, not exactly the ones that have been studied here because your FDA criteria are very cut and dried. But uh, we may have some surprises that may lead us to some new insights, which would be great. Absolutely. Um, Any data on weight changes with the medication? Because, of course, that's the number one concern that our midlife women and beyond are concerned about is weight gain. There, uh, in, in this study, there don't seem to be any changes in weight at all. In the uh, earlier studies that used much higher doses, 90 milligrams twice a day uh, by Graham Frazier, also published in the JCNM a few years ago, women lost weight on the compound. Because wow. I remember being in the back of the room and this was presented with Roger Lobo and we were just like, our jaws were dropping because there were clear-cut effects on hot flashes, sleep, and wait, and I thought, oh goodness, the menopause poly pill—it's arrived. Um, but uh, we're not—we're not seeing that in Skylight. And how do you anticipate that this will be dosed? Does it in the morning, in the night, with food, without food? Does it matter? I'm not sure that there was any directive on what time of day to take it. But you know, we do know that some medications do better day and night. You know, your statins work better for you if you take them at night. Yes. So it may be that uh, we'll come into. Uh, some knowledge on there's a better time of day to take it. And besides those women that we all have in our practice who are calling us and wanting to know when is this going to be available, the severe, severe cases, what other patient profiles do you anticipate that you would be offering it in your clinical practice? Well, this would probably be more of an off-label use, but obviously our breast cancer patients are some of the worst top Absolutely. and we don't have much to give them. And the other group that I'm looking forward to having this as another you know, bow in the quiver is the older patient who's now past 70, is on hormones, and hormones are, are beginning to 
so she's, she's starting to get some health risks that are emerging that make hormones not a good choice for her. So those kinds of patients that, that begin to have contraindications to hormones or may be developing them soon or who just want to get off them and haven't been able to wean and the alternatives haven't worked, this is, this is another uh, potential thing that we can give them that may allow them to get off of hormones. What, what about the patients um, with unstable cardiovascular disease, active thromboembolic disease, um... You know, we I see these 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 women with organ transplants, hypercoagulability. You know, multiple PEs on anticoagulation, uterine cancer yeah, so survivors. Those are, yeah. those are the non yeah. Those are the no estrogen people. So you can't give them estrogen, and if the other stuff doesn't work, that's that's my you know, that's my waiting list for fezolantant <laughs> right now. And um, what about in women? And I don't know how often you see this, but I definitely see this, and it makes me wonder how much of this has to do with aging in the brain because I'll see women on adequate doses of estrogen, even testing their testosterone, even perimenopausal women on hormonal contraception, which is of course much higher relative dose on the estrogen receptors than hormone therapy. And they still have classic breakthrough vasomotor symptoms. Do you ever anticipate using it with estrogen or do you have any other thoughts about this group of women who clearly are adherent to their hormones, but still have vasomotor symptoms? Yeah, I have the same, you know, the same issues because, you know, when you have a referral practice, these are the patients that you, you get. And I've done the same, same maneuvers. You push the estrogen dose as high as you feel reasonably comfortable. And if there's no relief, sometimes those patients will just go off because it doesn't even make a difference. So yes, will I try fizzlinitant in them? Absolutely. It, it may help. Um, it may not, but they do seem by all accounts to have hot flashes that, you know, you've ruled out all the other extremely weird and rare things they might have. Um, and they look like they're just like hot flashes. So it may be that they have some parallel pathway that's operating. And, and how about those estrogen deficient patients who have like unusual symptoms? And of course they don't usually ever want to admit it. You have to ask them and they're like, oh, how'd you know? Like the tactile hallucinations, formications, they feel like worms are crawling on their scalp or they're highly sensitive and they can't stand to be touched. And a lot of times estrogen helps those symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I think that as we get more facility with using something like this, we may try to deploy it in those settings because you know, for, for many of these conditions, they can be very disruptive and annoying. Um, and these are low risk treatments. So if, you know, I will often recommend patients with atypical symptoms, try, try hormones. You know, I, maybe you didn't read the textbook and you just have these symptoms and they're actually estrogen related. Try them for a few months. If they work, we have an answer. And if they don't work, then we'll move on. So that may be a, you know, that may be something that we will try with patients in the future because it does have this efficacy. I mean, I, I've certainly employed that in my clinical practice, and I'm amazed at the number of women who don't have vasomotor symptoms, but they might have a lot of musculoskeletal symptoms, fatigue, or their other baseline conditions seem to have deteriorated, which most people just attribute to time or age, and you give them a course of hormone therapy. And they're significantly better. And it would be nice for those women that can't or won't take hormones who have these issues that you think are somehow related to the menopause transition, you know, to be able to offer them this. Of course, I know this is all off-label. I'm just, you know, kind of talking out loud. Yeah, and I think I think all of us will do this once once it's out there and we'll, we'll gain some practical knowledge of 
how how it works, and there'll probably be some post marketing studies. And um, do you think for women, you know, that have psychiatric problems, because a lot of psychiatric disorders, if someone's had postpartum depression or severe PMS, PMDD, when they have estrogen deficiency, a lot of times their psychiatric baseline problems get worse. Um, and many times estrogen can be somewhat helpful in stabilizing that. But again, we have these patients with psychiatric problems who can't take it. Do you have any thoughts about how women on mood stabilizing medicines? Uh, I know you mentioned some are already already on SSRIs who took uh, the candy neuron inhibitors in the trial. Do you have any thoughts about that class of patients? Yeah, and you know, it may there may be some benefit to trying something like Fezo because it seemed to improve sleep at the higher dose. So again, at that 45 milligram dose, there was a small improvement in sleep, but that may translate to a clinical benefit that's worth it for a patient with a mood disorder that's otherwise not you know, responding to the standard treatment. So Phaso hopefully will be on the market at 45 milligrams a day. Seems to be very similar to placebo. We obviously wanna watch for liver signals, of course, since it's metabolized in the liver, how long would you recommend someone being on it? Would just come back at three months and then a year? Well, for hormones and other treatments, we usually, you know, have a patient, I will usually have them get reevaluated no more than three months after they start. Yes. You know, working, not working, do we need to adjust your dose? And then once you're there, um, I will usually see those patients annually. Um, we'll be accruing more data about FESO as it gets into clinical use, so we'll get more safety information as time goes on. So do you anticipate that this will be an option for uh, women of all ages and stages of menopause, even those that are in the perimenopausal time frame, which many times actually have worse vasomotor symptoms than in the postmenopause? Yeah, in perimenopause, estrogen may be the better option, unless you absolutely can't give it. Because that's hot flushes seem to be more due to fluctuations in estrogen. So stabilizing their estrogen levels often does the trick for those patients. But uh, with FESO, we have no experience at that, you know, in the perimenopausal women. So hard to say if it's going to be helpful or not. And the, but we'll all be tempted to use it. And what, what about like any pregnancy category ratings? Because obviously it's unusual to get pregnant in perimenopause, but it's certainly not unheard of. And these women can intermittently ovulate. So would there be um, concerns or warnings or just we don't have any data, it's not studied? There's no data. Yeah, there's just no data to guide it. Anything in animal studies that would suggest? Um... There isn't that I know of. Um, there might be out there because it might have been in the initial uh, preclinical studies, but there, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, this is just so fascinating, and um, I hope we can have you back again on uh, speaking of women's health after uh, we've had the opportunity perhaps to use this medication and talk about other things uh, on the horizon for women. I really want to thank you so much, Dr. Nanette Santaro, for your time and your insights. And I want to thank our audience for tuning in to the Speaking of Women's Health CME podcast. We also have a podcast uh, for lay women, and we have free information for um, any of your friends, family, patients, uh, that's non-branded on, on everything under the sunflower in uh, women's health, menopause, and options on our speakingofwomenshealth.com. And I hope you're going to join us for our next menopause learning episode. I'll be interviewing Dr. Mary Jane Minken of Yale, 
Um, she's an expert menopause uh, clinician, and she's got special interest in breast cancer survivors and sexual uh, function. And uh, I will be discussing integrating these neurokinin inhibitors and holistic care into current clinical practice with uh, Dr. Minkin. So I'm your host, Dr. Holly Thacker of Speaking of Women's Health. Thank you for joining me in the Sunflower House, and we'll see you back next time. You can catch us on any of the places that you get your podcast, um, iTunes, uh, Google, uh, Stitcher, um, Radio Influence, um, and any place where there's podcasts. So thank you so much, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time in the Sunflower House. <music>